This sermon, Envy, Honesty, and Refuge, was preached by Tim Lambros on Sunday, August 6, 2023, at Sovereign Grace Church. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 73. If you're new to reading your Bible, that's going to be pretty close to the middle of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, particularly today, I think this is the longest uh, psalm that we're covering this summer, and it's really going to be important that you have a Bible in front of you as we work our way through this. We're going to look at the text a lot. I'm not going to have any points as we work through this psalm. It's vivid and descriptive enough, and I would love for you, whether it's on your phone or a tablet or a print Bible, to have that in front of you as we work our way through this psalm. And before we read the text, just to introduce you to where we're at, you'll notice that it says book three, and you know, the chapters and verses were put in place by people after the Word of God was canonized, but Historians say that these five books of the Psalms were all part of the collection as they were being written. So there's a sense that God organized these. And then it says, before verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. We're used to having David write the Psalms. We're used to David's history. But now we're going to have 11 Psalms that were written by Asaph. Asaph, if you look at 1 Chronicles, was... A musician, was a leader of musicians. Twice it says David appointed him for a specific job. Essentially when the temple came back to Israel, this was before the permanent temple was built. Remember David was dancing in excitement and his wife did not like that at all. Remember that whole story? Uh, Well, this is when it came back to Israel and they wanted a, a, a group of leaders to have continual thanksgiving going around the presence of God in the temple. And Asaph was a leader of that group. So there's a little bit of context. But let me ask you to stand now as we read this entire psalm, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongues, their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But, but when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom am I, have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I des desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Please take your seats as we pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I ask now that you would bless these words. Lord, let not the words of the messenger get in the way of your words. Lord, we pray for your active presence to work through this active word addressing our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The other day, Kathy and I were talking about some of the difficulties we went through when we started our life together many moons ago, for you young people, many, many moons ago, um, we had, uh, most of you know, a shotgun wedding. Two months later, we were involved in a head-on head car accident as a woman pulled in front of us going through an intersection on the way home for dinner. Kathy was about 20 weeks pregnant. She was in the ICU. I had plastic surgery on my head. It was a daunting experience two months into our marriage relationship and getting ready to be parents. God was gracious to us. They just monitored Kathy. Nothing happened to the baby. Our oldest, Nicole, was born that August. Eleven months later, she had one of those high fevers that cause, um, um, what's it called when you're convulsing? Um, seizures. And as a young married couple, we stood at UNC, watching our daughter seize for 20 minutes, and the doctors couldn't do anything. It was a terrifying moment. Uh, they put her on a drug that a year later, they took off the market. We tease her about it still. <laughs> a year after that, my dad found out he had a monster tumor in his lower back. He had surgery, complications of that, and in the third year of our marriage, my father passed away at the young age of 54. D to my memory, I, I can't consciously say I had doubts about 
the goodness of God like Asaph. But as we recounted those times, I thought that that would be the time that you could really doubt God's goodness and kindness for you. I had given my life to the Lord before I was kind of practicing a religion, and now I had a new birth. I had a spiritual life. I gave my life to the Lord. We were trying to build our life and live to God's commands and God's wishes, and we ran into the things you run into in a fallen world, whether it be the difficulty of living in a fallen world, suffering, trials. Those are the moments that we get tempted to doubt what we know about God. And what I love about this psalm, you know, some teachings from Scripture are directed at leaders, some are directed at mothers, some are directed at fathers, and you, you, you preach it and you teach it and say, now there's a target audience here, but there, there's some general application we can all learn. This is for every believer. This, these truths from this psalm, you will, if you have not, you will have these same temptations. Probably today in a group this size, there are some that are having the temptations that Asaph had right now. But by the grace of God, we'll see Asaph and we'll see from this text that God alone empowers us to honest confession and God alone provides a soul-satisfying refuge, I'm going to call it. God alone empowers confession and provides, provides a soul-satisfying refuge. So let's walk through this psalm. I just want to have you feel the, the honest transparency from ASAP. That's why I've not structured it in points. We're just going to walk through this psalm and let it land. So I want you to see it with your eyes, hear it from the pulpit, and let the Spirit, Spirit of God work. And then in the end, we'll draw some truths about what we learn here and what we can apply. Verse 1, truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. The psalmist begins with the truth about God. God is good. He's going to mention the heart six times in this psalm. And so we're going to see how important it is to monitor and evaluate where our heart is. One commentator succinctly wrote, the state of the heart, listen now, determines whether a man lives in truth in which God's goodness is experienced or the state of the heart will determine how you experience. That's what we're going to see in Asaph. That's what can happen to every one of us in how we experience the goodness of God. Or, and what we see next is the or in Asaph's life, and I'm sure we can relate to it. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. You'll notice in the Psalms, as for me is a key phrase. You might remember Joshua, probably the most popular use of this phrase. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. But all through the Psalms, you'll see as for me. It's a decisive direction 
of where you're going, where God is taking you. And I'll give you a little hint to the very end. He'll use this phrase again in a very different state. But right now, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I was on solid ground, and I moved to a place that was very slippery. And then in one transparent, honest testimony of a sentence, he says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I saw something, the prosperity of the wicked, and it had an impact of my heart. I got envious of what was going on. He saw some things and envy filled his heart. Envy began to rule his heart. He got very microscopic on what he saw. He saw the arrogance of the prosperous, the arrogance of the wicked, the arrogance of the successful, and it affected his heart. Now, David's not the only one in Scripture that deals with this difficulty. Why, Lord, do the godly seem to suffer and the godless get a mulligan? Why do the godly seem to be in pain all the time and the godless just have a smooth life? David deals with this in Psalm 37. We won't read it today. But he just encourages his listeners to wait. Like grass, it will fade, he says in Psalm 37. Like green plants, they will soon die. Job dealt with this. Why do the godly suffer and the godless seem to do well? He had a very different result. If you go read Job 42, verse 3, for three chapters he absorbed God's relentless questioning so that in Job 42, verse 3, he says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Job was humbled. Job realized, not only am I not a place to ask what you're doing with the godly and the godless, I'm not at a place to ask anything of what you're doing because you are good, oh God. But there is this dilemma, and one author, one commentator said, Asas dealing with this might be the most perceptive treatment of this, of this theme in all of Scripture. So we get to see how Asaph deals with this seemingly injustice that he sees with his eyes. James Montgomery Boyce said it like this. The wicked seem to do well in this world, much better than the godly, and this is not what we would expect in a moral universe directed by a sovereign God. If God is in control of things, the plans of the wicked should flounder. They should even be publicly punished. The godly alone should prosper. That is... Asaph's thinking, that can be our thinking, that can be very shallow thinking, because the irony is this, Christian trials, what do they do? When we experience this, that's God's loving discipline, shaping us into God-like character. The prosperity that the, the, that the wicked enjoy, the I did it my way kind of doing it, 
That increases their culpability on judgment. They're filling up for themselves wrath for a future day. So here we have, starting in verse 4, Asaph's refreshingly honest confession. You might say he's venting. We have to be careful when we cry out to God. Sometimes it can take on a charge. Sometimes it can take on an accusatory tone. God wants us to be open and honest, but watch the development with Asaph, starting in verse 4. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Lord, the way I look at it, they seem like they don't have any of the painful struggles that we have. They're just getting fat. They even look good. What is with that? And then he goes on. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't have the pains, the claws, the difficulty that the rest of us have. Verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. And we know, apart from God's illumination of what's really going on, we tend to claim our success, our prosperity as our own. And what emerges? Pride. Look what I have done. Look what I have built. And then, of course, when pride takes root in our hearts, what's going to come out of our mouths? Look at verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. What takes hold of our hearts will eventually come out of our mouth. And in this case, it is malice. It is scoffing. It is threatening oppression. You've seen it before. Proud people, successful people often get to a place where they're so convinced of what they're doing that sometimes even what you have, they, be they believe belongs and they threaten oppression. It's a natural working out of the proud and the arrogant but it gets worse. Jump down to verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? At the highest level of our arrogance is God doesn't even know what I'm doing. He doesn't even care. God doesn't even have knowledge of what's going on in my life. And in a backdoor way, there is a huge assault upon the character of God. But look back at verse 10. This is a difficult, admittedly, a difficult phrase to translate. There's definitely some, some arguments amongst scholars and commentators, but verse 10 says, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. If Asaph intended to be speaking to the people of God, this is what happens. Even the people of God celebrates in ways, the arrogant and the wicked and the prosperous. How many of you have gotten a thrill out of meeting a celebrity from Hollywood, a politician, an athlete, whose life represents verses 4 through 10, but there was a heartfelt celebration just to get an autograph, just to have a conversation. In a way, even God's people can celebrate 
their arrogance. Then in verse 12, he does a somewhat of a summary. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. That's what Asaph sees. He sees something that allows envy to get a hold of his heart. And then the next two verses are just dripping with self-pity. We've all gone here. All in vain, I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I've lived according to the law. I've led the musicians. We've given thanksgiving every day since we got the temple back. It's all in vain, Lord. Poor old me. Verse 14, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Lord, Tom and Derek and Kathy and other friends, Chris at the office, they're rebuking me every day. I'm trying to be humble and grow. It's just all in vain. What pity you should have on me. Then verse 15, this is really a, 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 an evidence of grace. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He knows how ugly his thoughts are. And if he opens his mouth as a leader, it will have an impact. And he restrains himself. But the real turning point is verse 16 and 17. But, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. When I thought to understand, when I tried to figure out the godly and the godless and what I see, this, this portrait that I just painted, that, that if, if it was a physical portrait, he's way too close to the canvas because he can't see anything beyond that. But this picture that I have painted, when I try to get my mind around it, Lord, I'm just so weary. It's a wearisome task until... If there were ever a hinge word in the psalm, it's this, until. There was a point in time that things are about to change. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. I discerned the godless, the wicked, the proud, their end. Asaph was experiencing what 2 Peter 1.9 says. Have these qualities, and then he says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Asaph was that until, until he went into the sanctuary of the Lord. This is the definitive transition in his testimony, in his confession. And remember, the Psalms were put to song. I thought all week long, how do you sing this? This just lands on my lap like a, like a testimony, a confession until, until he went into the sanctuary of God. Well, you remember I said historically this is before the permanent Solomon's temple was built. God's presence, the ark, was in a tent. And there were three tribes North, three tribes south, 
three tribes east, three tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel were structured in a way that God's presence was at the temple of the community, the sanctuary where God promised both land and his presence is where he dwelt. The sanctuary was where he tabernacled. We sing about that at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. God came to tabernacle with us in the person of Jesus Christ. God dwelt in the presence of the temple. And it pointed to a future temple. Jesus confused people when he said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Tear down this physical temple because the tabernacling amongst God's people is about to change. I will rebuild it when I raise from the dead and send my Holy Spirit to my people so that they experience the temple of the Lord in their hearts. That's what was accomplished at the cross. No wonder Jesus said, I bring a new and better covenant. No longer is the temple of God at a physical location, but in the hearts and the minds of the believers because of what Jesus Christ had done on the cross. Now, the place of God's active presence, he didn't have to go into the sanctuary like Asaph did. We go boldly into the throne of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when he says sanctuary, Asaph is not necessarily physically saying, I went into a certain location. Asaph is saying, somehow, someway, God's truth. Because remember, the temple was where the law was kept. That was God's revelation of the actual law and the prophets and the, were kept in the temple. But somewhere, somehow, God illumined his mind, his active presence, got him away from this portrait he painted he was so consumed with to see and discern the end of the proud and the arrogant. No different than how we look at the church. It is a different way we experience God when we gather in a building here, but there's no magic about showing up at this building. It's just a different way that we experience the active presence of the Lord. It's special. God's people are to gather. But Asaph was stuck and almost slipped until he entered the sanctuary of God. And then verses 18 and moving forward, he continues to testify very vividly, but it's a very different, it's a very, you see his heart move from one place to another until, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I discerned their end. And then look what he says in verse 18. Truly, you set them in simply places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away by utter terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Like a dream, the arrogant and the prosperous get proud and do their violence and they oppress. And all of us can relate to a dream. I don't know if you have vivid dreams 
I still can't fathom how typically when I hit the alarm, I have an eight-minute sleep. And about eight minutes later, it starts beeping to get my lazy buns up. And sometimes that beeping is incorporated into a dream. I have no idea how that works. But when I awake, it vaporizes. And that's the imagery now that Asaph's discernment, illumination, whatever you want to call it, he goes, I see their end. They may appear to be healthy and sleek and getting fat and have no problems, but it will end like a dream. They will wake up and God's terror will be there. And like a dream, it will evaporate. And then a little bit of more confession, verse 21 When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. And wonderful truth now is he's preaching truth to himself. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. I am almost slipped. But look what he says. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He does both spheres, all of heaven and all of earth. Nothing will satisfy me like you and you alone. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Quite a movement of his heart from one place to another. Quite a movement from the picture he painted in verses 4 through 10. He could only see. He must have been like inches away from the canvas of the portrait. And now God illumines his mind and he sees things very differently. There's four things here I think we can learn from this psalm. Sometimes I feel like it's an implication. Sometimes I feel like it's a truth that God wants us to wrap our arms around. But sometimes it's just simple application. So let's transition to truths we can draw from Psalm 73. Number one, Psalm 73 warns. Psalm 73 warns believers, you can slip. Pay attention to what you see. Pay attention to what comes out of your mouth. You can be like Asaph and slip. Living in this fallen world, and I know some of you suffer daily. I pray for you. I know you. it's a good day or a bad day, and there's not a whole lot of other categories. You could be tempted to slip and spiral down living by what you see versus the eternal truths that God puts in your heart. Some of you go through severe trials that come out of nowhere. Some of you just might be walking, serving. You're single, you want to be married. You're married, you want a better spouse. You're working, but you want a better career path. And you're tempted to be envious of the wicked. You're tempted to live by your 
sight. Listen, church, God created us to be interpreters. We're different than the animals. We don't live by the facts. We live by our interpretation of the facts. We see things and our hearts move from places to places. That's just the reality of our human nature. We have to be careful on what we see and what then proceeds from our mouth in our interpretation. My sister-in-law, Mary, about 10 years ago, found out she had breast cancer. And Mary's a pretty deep thinker, and she was sharing with us one time that one new thing she had to be careful of as they were looking through treatments and how to move through this was... You know, I start to think about this, and before I know it, I'm eight or nine thoughts down the road, and I'm standing over my grave. It happened so quickly. It was a whole new battle for her to take her thoughts captive, because your heart and your thoughts will take you places that can be unhealthy, as we see with Asaph. So it warns believers that we're not immune from slipping. We need to watch. That ugly portrait that Asaph painted was just from what he saw when he got envious of the wicked. And I think that uh, this warning should cause us to realize we need one another. We need to share our thoughts with others that know us. We need to have friends that will help us run to God's goodness instead of doubting that it exists. That's where a friend comes in. Otherwise, left to ourselves, we slip into the abyss of self-pity and living by what we see. So Psalm 73 warns us. Psalm 73 commissions. I believe Psalm 73 commissions us Spend some time this week meditating on verses 20 and 21. Uh, I mean, 19. No, it's 18 through 21. Oh, correction again. It's 18 through 20. I've been saying that to myself all week long. I don't know why. Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream, when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a believer, that is your end. If you're here today and you've built something and you're very proud of it and you're arrogant, but it's apart from God, this is your end. If you're here today and you don't even know your status before the Lord, let me put some urgency in to your mind and your hearts that there is a place called hell that is real and it can come upon you like a dream when you wake up and pretty soon you face God's terror. The antidote to that that is still valid today is a simple confession of your sin and your need for Jesus and faith in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. That is the antidote. When, 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 when Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, he started off good, but pure in heart is not something we've earned. Pure in heart is all of God's grace when we 
confess our sins and say, Lord, I need, there's no way I could do enough good deeds to merit heaven. And so I believe there's a call here to intentionally live amongst those whose end is so descriptively written in this psalm. I always fathom when I'm praying for evangelism in our church, muse maybe is the word, because I know every one of you probably have at least two or three people that are in some level of conversation with you about the gospel, their status before God. Uh, You're trying to teach, educate, persuade people about the claims of Jesus Christ. So with about 75 adults, that's even modestly two, three hundred people that we are in conversations with. So don't forget that what we started last year, these bridge courses, are meant to not be the church's evangelism. It's just a tool to help you take some of those hundreds of people that you're at some level of conversation and put them into a class where they can, in a safe and fun environment, ask their questions, be educated, be loved and cared for. So as we think about these verses and what we're doing as a church, don't forget that. Number three, Psalm 73 encourages. Psalm 73 encourages. What does it encourage us to? What I call intentional sanctuary thinking. What happened in verse 16, let's go back there again because it's so abrupt, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome text. And in verse 17, that word, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned the end. You know what that's called? Great phrase from C.J. Mahaney, the transforming effect of a divine perspective. A transforming effect. We want truth to affect us in a transforming way. That's what we pray every Sunday when we preach. The transforming effect of a divine perspective. Asaph had a small portrait he painted, not a divine perspective. And when God brought truth to him some way, somehow, when he entered into the sanctuary where truth and God's active presence is at work, There was a transforming effect to this new affection he had. Oh, wait a minute. I know the end game. These people are on a death march. Why am I envious of them? Thomas Chalmers' famous sermon from the early 1900s titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The expulsing power. It can get rid of your curtain state of mind and replace it with truth that sets you free. I believe as a church we can grow in pursuing intentional sanctuary thinking. <coughs> Here's a trick question. I loved lab courses. I wasn't a great college student, but I took some biology courses, I took some chemistry courses. And it was typically three credits for all the head knowledge and then one credit for the lab. I love the lab because that's when the head knowledge became real. I remember the time we boiled coffee and I could just see the crystals of caffeine. I was like, so cool. So I got a question for you. If you had all of the fancy, expensive lab equipment, 
and you had a glass put down, and your task was, what is the most effective way to get the air out of that glass? What would you do? You got all the equipment from NASA. You got everything you need. How would you get the air out of that glass? Those of you that are smiling have probably already heard this. You pour water in it. You pour water in it and the air goes. That's the transforming effect of a divine perspective. That's what truth comes to do. It replaces the ugliness that Asaph had and puts new life and new affection because truth has transformed his thinking until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned therein. I, my mind was illumined on what their end is and it absolutely transformed how I started to think about things. So how do we grow in pursuing intentional sanctuary thinking? How do we grow in the psalm that's encouraging us to think like this? Well, a couple of things here. The first question is, what's most influencing me? We have a lot of options in the information age. We have a lot of options to bring stuff into our mind and our heart. Not all of them are healthy. So let me step on some toes here. Is the 45-minute Sunday sermon competing with hours of podcasting from the Joe Rogans, the Dave Ramseys, the Jordan Petersons, the Ben Shapiros, three of those four aren't even Christians. Hours of podcasting competing with truth coming to you once a Sunday. How can you grow in sanctuary thinking if your mind is just filled with politics and worldview and stuff that isn't going to illumine the way God's word does. Who are your influences? How much do they have impact? I love podcasting. You have to be careful. You have to be careful. Some of you love your favorite online preachers. Some of you love online Bible studies. Sometimes some of you guys love getting in the word. Certainly celebrate that. But I want to make a case that you make the influence of your local church the primary influence and all the others secondary. Let me ask you this. Here, here's what happens if you've got all sorts of hours of information out there pouring into your head and you have a 45-minute sermon. You tend to be, I've done this. Good sermon, Derek. Then on the way home, you pour on your podcast. Let me ask you this. You ever gone home and restudied a sermon? Ever got home and got those notes on Sunday night or Monday and took your Monday and Tuesday devotion and delved into it at a deeper level? That, 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 that's wrenching the redemptive juice out of people that God has called to pastor and shepherd you. That's what's different from all the other information out there. There's only three pastors. There's only one set of leaders in here that God has personally appointed to share. There's only so many members that you know and are known by. Those are the ingredients that God puts together in the local church to influence us towards sanctuary thinking. You ever gone to a community group? And maybe it's hey, I've been getting angry with my wife, I need some help, and people are opening up the Word of God. 
Yeah, I went through a season like that too. Boy, here's where I went to get here. Here's how the gospel, you ever take those and go home and make them your Bible study? That's exacting the redemptive juice out of members who know you and love you are living life with you. That's so different than some online fellowship group where you can paint a picture of who you are. I don't really know you. How about the book last Sunday? You gonna make that a read? You gonna make that a study? You know, I read books through one time to get a gist of it. I have to go back a second time and read it to make it a study where you really look up the text and you digest it and you sit under the truth of an author that your local shepherds recommended that you read. I'm arguing that the local church should be your biggest influence in helping us to greater sanctuary thinking. And I could go on. Sovereign Grace University, worship and prayer nights, parenting classes, evangelism quipping. Let me just quote Thomas Chalmers, Dr. Chalmers, great sentence from his sermon. It is seldom that any of our tastes are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. The heart must have something to cling to and never, by its own voluntary consent, will it so denude itself of all of its attachments. Therefore, the superior affection for God through the free gospel of Christ is necessary to displace worldly affections. Or in this case, necessary to be that until your heart can move from wrongly accusing God, from wrongly doubting God's goodness to a place that you can say, whom? Am I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I want. So let's grow in sanctuary thinking. Let's steward all the means of grace that God has with pastors and shepherds that God has appointed for you, leaders and members that know you and you know them. That's a whole different world for having influence in our minds and our hearts. Finally, Psalm 73 proclaims. What does it proclaim? There's a whole sermon here, and I want to read, I saved this last verse for, for this. Verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Where's a healthy place? Where does Asaph's heart go to? To a place where God is all sufficient for his deepest satisfaction. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, but being near God. That is this soul-satisfying refuge that Asaph was able to travel to, his heart was able to travel to. And I love at the end here, being the evangelist, that I may tell of all your works. That's a healthy place. God is my refuge. We saw that in Psalm 46. And I want to tell of your works, Lord. Is God your all-sufficiency? We waver, we go up and down, but Asaph gives us the target. I want to be at a place where I am not envious of anything in this world 
but being near God is my refuge. As the music team comes up, I want to tell you a little story I heard. A dad said his boy, about five or six years old, um, had this interesting little season. And in this house, uh, the bedroom was pretty close to where dad would go and read after he put the kids to bed. So he puts his boy to bed. They do their little routine, whether it's praying, memorizing scripture, whatever it might be. And they pray and they put him down and he would go to his chair and start reading. And it was just a short distance away. And he said for a, for a while, his son repeatedly did this. He said, Dad? And his dad would say, yeah? And his son would say, oh, never mind. In a human way, that illustrates what Asaph is saying. You're near. I can go to sleep now. You're there. I'm at peace. Dad, yeah? Oh, never mind. I feel your nearness. That's the place Asaph got to by the grace of God. And that's the place we want to be in our trials, in our difficulties, when we're tempted to doubt. Let's pray.